All major theme parks have delays. When they opened Disneyland in 1956, nothing worked, said John. Malcolm replied, yeah, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. Recognize this quotes movie? Stay tuned to find out or check out the title of this episode of Talking Pictures Trivia. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. Additionally, joining us as a guest this week is... I'm Chris. Thanks for joining us. Chris has joined us for countless movies and will be quizzing us on our upcoming Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings episode. Chris conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, each question is worth one point, And in round two, each question is worth two points. Then once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Walking up to theaters in 1993, we would have had to choose between Hot Shot Part 2, Super Mario Brothers, Last Action Hero, Sleepless in Seattle, and today's movie, Jurassic Park. Nick will be quizzing us today. Nick, what is Jurassic Park all about? So there's this eccentric, really wealthy guy named John Hammond. And he says, you know what? Wouldn't it be a great idea if we brought dinosaurs back on the planet? I'm sure nothing would go wrong. And in fact, I'll have a bunch of people, including my grandkids, come to the park before it's really ready and see how it goes. That's the movie. I swear. We'll talk more about it as we continue. Tom. If you only had one word to describe Jurassic Park, what would it be? Promethean. Chris? I went with momentous. What about you, KJ? Majestic. I'm going to go with... Is that one word? (laughs) I'm pretty sure it is. It's a leitmotif. (laughs) (laughs) The dinosaur's leitmotif? I don't know. It's time for question one. What is the first glimpse of a dinosaur we see in Jurassic Park? Locked in. Locked in. Be specific. When that last word there, Jurassic Park, are you referring to the movie or the park? The beautiful answer is both. I'm fairly confident you never see a dinosaur off park, right? Hmm. All right, let me think about this one. Well, so in Quizzo, sometimes you got to just go with what the quizzer wants, even if you're not sure. So locked in. What do I want then? In the opening scene, they're they're getting a a caged dinosaur into another facility. Um, And during that scene, you see a glimpse we and be specific, says Nick, which means he either wants, do we see its eyes? I don't think so. I think we might see a claw that kind of wraps around the, um, the the cage thing as it's being pushed. So I'm going with the claw of the dinosaur in the first scene. I believe, Tom, 
the second? Uh, we see the Velociraptor's eye in the opening scene because the um, as the raptor is moving into the cage from the holding pen, he or she rather uh, bangs into it, knocking the gate lifter attendant off. Robert Muldoon grabs the guy as he's being dragged in and he looks and he sees the eye of the Velociraptor. The Velociraptor sees him and it's very dramatic. What was the first dinosaur in the book? There's a better question. We'll save that for later. Okay. <laughs> I actually do know the yeah. answer to that question. But Chris, what is your answer to this question? Uh, I, I'm going to mirror what these guys said. It's the Velociraptor in the metal box that takes 27 people to move the box, but only one person can lift the gate, apparently. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so, so Muldoon rushes over and you see him looking in and the Velociraptor is obviously looking back. And I think it's the first time that you're supposed to get a glimpse of their intelligence. So, Velociraptor. The unautomated gate. Spared no expense. <laughs> uh, on the box that doesn't lock to the facility either. Like, that's also important. So, for the question one, I'm sad to say, there will be no points awarded. You guys are so close. This was a little bit of a trick question. The eye is the most memorable part of that scene, but you do actually see the first raptor run out. So you see the first raptor run out, which dis, uh, messes up the gate. And then the eye comes after that. So sorry, yeah. no points on that. But that's exactly why I did it. Because the most memorable part is that eye. But you actually did see the one running away first. However, I just wanted this as an excuse to start talking about dinosaurs. What do we think about all these cool dinosaurs? <laughs> I, this, this movie had some of the best, I don't know if you have a question about special effects or a reason to talk about that later, but this was some of the, the best special effects ever. I just, I just saw the new Doctor Strange movie, the Doctor Strange 2, and I would argue that some of the dinosaur special effects in this movie were better than the gigantic tentacle eye in Doctor Strange. Like, and this was 1993, this was 20 years ago. No, this was 30 years ago, my apologies. Uh, some of the best special effects and the dinosaurs whether they were mechanical animatronics or whether they were CGI, they all looked fantastic. And they were a blend too. They used multiple different methods. We could talk about it later, but I have a topic that can blend either way. So I agree with you on that. This is why I was saying last week, this movie really stood out and really enhanced our expectations of CGI in the early 90s. Well, I think what's so great about it, it's Stan Winston who did... Not the CGI aspects, but the live action automatrons. And we, we know Stan Winston, uh, he designed the Queen from Aliens, the sequel to Alien. Um, and this was the, the next step up. And so, you know, he made the dinosaur, including a full size automatronic Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes. If you see like, behind the scenes, it's, it is the size of the thing in the movie. Um, you know, so that's like they, they built these skeletons and then covered them in skin i mean it, it's it's what's great about that is that it doesn't age and well there is cgi and i think the cgi ages a little bit i don't know if you guys agree or disagree it, it did a bit but for the time frame it was amazing early 90s it was great but what makes the movie age so well is that so little of it is cgi so much of it is yes. these kind of practical these these puppets which i think they had up to 20 different puppeteers operating the the velociraptors and so that oh god that, that it, it's 
really good special effects are kind of hard to top, even with CGI, even the magic that CGI gives us. Um, you know, my other great example is an American werewolf in London. The, the werewolf scene is another great example of practical effects. But the but hats off to Stan Winston and the work he's done on this. Even if the um, even if they scaled back on the realism of the dinosaurs, um, the example there would be Velociraptor, which looks nothing like an actual Velociraptor, which was kind of like a foot high. Uh, I think the best description I heard of a Velociraptor is it is a razor chicken. <laughs> it's about as as ferocious as a chicken is. Um, but you know, whatever, man. They're really really great automatronic work. Yeah, the, the special effects were amazing, and, and the dinosaurs looked really good. But the one thing that struck me on this watch was, in the beginning, Grant's talking about how they um, evolved into birds. So I looked into it a little bit, real quick on Wikipedia, guys. I didn't really read a lot. But in the 80s was the first time somebody said, hey, I think dinosaurs became birds. And they went so far as to say dinosaurs probably had feathers. So it's a little strange that this movie acknowledged that, but then made the baby boomers dinosaurs. Yeah, I, and we've actually found fossilized feathers, or scientists have. What Spielberg had told Winston, I, I had read an, in, um, an interview in which they recount this, was Winston wanted more multicolored dinosaurs that reflect the, the kind of feather covering. And Spielberg said, you know, gray and brown and black are scary. Feathers are not scary. And if you've seen um, markups of what like a, um, a Velociraptor or a Utah Raptor, any of these things look like with feathers, it's it's not that frightening. So <laughs> it would have changed the whole. Yeah, yeah he wasn't going for realism here. <laughs> he was and he wasn't. He was going for realism, but remember, we're being entertained. You know? Well, we all know that Tyrannosaurus Rex can't see you if you don't move, right? But you found that out in the fossils. <laughs> How do they know that? They don't. <laughs> they don't know it. I suppose they're in. They made it up. Yeah. That's something they point out in the book. And I, I Chris, I know, did you read the book recently, Chris? Or reread the book recently? I actually just reread the book uh, over the last month or so. I stopped when our schedule got a little out of line, but I did reread it just recently. Oh, I just finished it yesterday. <laughs> so I'm right there with you. Um, but in the book, they make this really good point that Actually, we don't really know very much. Like we can't really learn that much from, Alan Grant makes this point, we can't really learn that much from bone. So I think in the in the book, they kind of discover these things. And I guess they just say, Alan Grant knows this from the evolution of blah, 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 into blah, blah, blah. But it's a little more, um, the, the mysteries of science are highlighted more in the book. They took a lot of liberties. That's all. They did. Even like, what is it? The Dilophosaurus. There was no proof that they had that. Um, the frill. Frills. Yeah. And also yeah. the Dilophosaurus. Spits, spits poison. <laughs> yeah. Dilophosaurus was also about eight feet tall and weighed about 900 pounds. So it's, you know, it wasn't like a little thing that hopped around and killed, uh, killed Newman. But entertaining nonetheless, as we keep pointing out. It's time for question two. Aside from John Hammond's, plural, who was the narrator of the initial Jurassic Park lab tour? Oh. Locked in. All the hard-hitting questions today. Locked in. Locked in. KJ? 
the DNA strand. Okay, it would be Tom next. I also had the DNA strand. Mr. DNA. Oh, the point goes to Chris. The most correct answer. His name is Mr. DNA. He had a very formal name. That's why I have to give it to Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Mr. DNA is is the other narrator. Now, of course, this brings up the topic of technology. And that's why, Chris, I was saying technology can go either way. We can talk about the technology um, making the movie, which we kind of already did. But I'd like to talk about the technology in the movie. So this, this, this whole sequence here where they're doing the lab tour is really what made my mind blow for science at the time. Like, I think I was in fourth or fifth grade when this came out. I had already gone through my kitty dinosaur phase. So like you had kind of said, this was nostalgic a little bit. Oh, it's dinosaurs yeah. on, on TV. That's awesome. But it was, it was the scene where they start talking about DNA because I think I had probably just learned it in, in school that last year in like fourth grade. And then this movie comes out and I'm like, oh my goodness, that crap that my science teacher was blathering on about could actually be useful and do something cool like make dinosaurs. And even though I knew it was science fiction and the movies are fake, it was just kind of enlightening that, you know, science fiction is a thing and it really opened the doors to lots of different things. And I, the, the, the technology that they use is not great, <laughs> but I mean, it's still, it's still interesting that they, they had this story that they had this idea because uh, Crichton actually wrote the book in 90. It's, this is a fun fact. It only took two, two and a half years to get it from the published date of the book to the theatrical opening That's of the crazy movie, if you think which about is it. so yeah. quick, but he, he was in Hollywood to begin with. So I think, yeah. I think Spielberg knew this book was coming before it was actually published. Uh, but yeah, the technology, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And some of the visuals they give you with the, I really like the very closing scenes. The Velociraptor has the A's, the T's, the C's, the G's on its face. Like it's projected on its face. I thought that was like a cool little thing. Uh, Do we know I, where that was projected from? No, no idea. It was, oh, it was, it was never projected anywhere else except for that scene. <laughs> right, that like what, was it the computer screen with all their vents made out of that? I was trying to figure out. No, because it was, it was, yeah, it, it makes no sense whatsoever, but it was awesome. <laughs> Chris, as a man of science, what do you think about them trying to use amphibian frog DNA to plug up DNA from a reptile? That would never work. <laughs> it all, it's, it's all, they use an emu egg, they use amphibian DNA. They, they needed a plot point to make them turn from female to male is what they needed. And he had read somewhere that frogs could do that, I think. Uh, I, I'm okay with it because I love the movie, but at the same time, it's probably not good science. And since we're doing an adaptation block audience, talking about the approach this movie has to the advancements of science compared to the book, they share a worldview, but maybe not a tone. Both The book is extremely cautious and um, almost scolding about the advancements of science. Ian Malcolm in the book is sort of the voice piece of Crichton, you imagine, and he is on a soapbox. He's, he's an incredibly annoying character in the book. God bless Jeff Goldblum for turning him into somebody who's like charismatic and interesting. Because in the book, he's like speeches about the damage of science and how terrible it is. and Fire how, and brimstone. Oh, not, he's not really fire and brimstone. It's <laughs> not like the world will end because he thinks the world is greater than that. He just, he has this idea of science as being this like, um, 
this this thing from the enlightenment that needs to end he has like this kind of modernist's view of science and he thinks that um it's time to invade time to invade <laughs> there we go yeah, yeah, he, well, that, that, yeah. there it is <laughs> there it is yeah it's um yeah that that science is kind of invading and bound to fail and all, all this stuff it's it's incredibly annoying and the movie i think has this worldview too it it is saying much in the vein of like mary shelley's frankenstein be wary of what you discover be wary of what you explore and unveil the ethical questions about why and should we discover something are as important as can we discover or unveil something right um the movie though kind of falls into that contradiction of our technology has advanced so much to give us a great spectacular like um, like the blockbuster Jurassic Park that is telling us to be wary of great spectacular advancements. <laughs> um, the, the book is uh, maybe a little more forgivable in the sense that it's a book and not a great kind of CGI and uh, experience. Um, but the movie is also much more gentle. It isn't it doesn't feel as dark as the book. The book feels heavy. I don't know if you agree, Chris, but I mean, we learn about the dangers of dinosaurs in the beginning of the book when a few compies, a few Procomsonathus, eat the face off a baby. That's how we learn that dinosaurs are dangerous. So the tone is very different. And, and they take that into the sequel, correct? Yeah, that's the opening scene of the sequel. Yes. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I actually had this in my room in part, like they took so many things from this original book and sprinkled it in all these, all the movies to come. Like even the idea of blue from, I don't know if any of you have seen Jurassic World, but there was a, a blue beta velociraptor that uh, one of the characters is training. And they actually even talk about in the very last scene of the book, how one of the animals has stripes on them and they are the alpha. They're the one that's obviously in charge that are trying to migrate, which is another bird-like thing that they do. Uh, I have no idea where I was going with this. But just how they took other parts of the original source material. Oh, yeah. And then the, the aviary, else. the aviary was in uh, Jurassic World. And there's a jungle river, I think, was in Jurassic Park three. And then, yeah, the beach scene with the, the girl holding out her hand and the compie getting her like all that's from all that's from this original book, which they just kind of continued to pick away at. Uh, I do think the book is I, 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 I like the movie better than the book, honestly. Uh, they change a whole lot. The book yeah, is, is really different. Uh, and maybe it's just because I saw the movie first and I have such a visual acuity. Like I really like seeing things. So maybe that's why I like it better. But I, I like the, the movie better just because it's, it is a little less brimstone and, and doom and gloom. Another thing that always doesn't, I don't always remember correctly, is man didn't clone anything until four years after this movie. Right, Dolly the Sheep was was ninety seven, I think. So this was more science fiction at the time, and and nowadays our computers are so much faster. When they're talking about going through the DNA sequencing, I mean, I may it might not be trivial now, but I, I imagine it's it's not as daunting as it was in nineteen ninety three. You're absolutely right about the cloning, though. That was still very much sci fi and not reality. It was definitely theoretical, though. Like we, yes, I say we. Like I was a scientist then. Uh, scientists thought of the idea of being able to clone. Now that once they figured out, because DNA was discovered in the fifties, once they figured out how simple it actually was, 
they realized it probably wouldn't be so hard to kind of work backwards to actually turn something from DNA into a living thing. And although we didn't make Dolly until the, the late 90s, the, the theoreticalness of it was always, was very, very old. At the end of round one, Chris is ahead by one point. Tom and KJ still have plenty of time to get some points on the board in round two. We'll be right back soon after this brief break. Hello, and, and welcome, welcome back, back to B-Side. B-side, to B-side. To B-side. Finally, it is B-Side. Today we're going to be talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We're going to be discussing the famous W.F. Murnau film from 1927, Sunrise. The Icelandic movie from 2015, Rams. Juzo Itami's 1985 picture, Tam Popo. And today I'm going to be talking about a good old film that we just covered, and this is 1984's Ghostbusters. Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side, wherever you listen to Talking Pictures Trivia. And we're back. We're at the critical point of our episode where we ask the guests a key question. If you could write your own sequel for Jurassic Park, not including any of the multitude of sequels that exist, what would it be? All right. So obviously you could just go and see any of the ones that are already out there. But I, when I was a kid watching this for the first time, I was enamored by the Barbasol can that falls into the dirt that has the 15 embryos in it. And that never gets paid off in the end of this movie, which I didn't expect it to. But it also never gets paid off really in any of the sequel movies that have come since. Now, my guess is that we're supposed to be led to the fact that the embryos die from lack of refrigeration. But in my sequel, we had we had thousands of years into the future and the Barbasol can has been fossilized itself in the in the muddy soil. Nice. Some, <laughs> a, some alien species finds the Barbasol can with embryos and t- makes new dinosaurs and thinks that that's what the Earth was like all the time was these dinosaurs there. Completely outlandish. It's going to make a million dollars. Thank you very much. Might make more. I was going to say a million dollars isn't that much for a block. <laughs> I'm going I'm to make it for about sixteen fifty in my backyard. So it's, uh... <laughs> With the toys he had from pre-K. <laughs> so is it going to be like Planet of the Apes finds it? Are we doing Planet of the Apes? Planet Jurassic of the Apes. Park? Planet of the Apes means dinosaurs. Planet of the I, dinosaurs. I, something. I. I don't know. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be aliens or, or Planet of the Apes or anything like that. But I. I've always been enamored with what happens with that Barbasol can. Uh, like, we're led to believe that it's now sitting there waiting for somebody to find it. I doubt anybody would before the embryos died. But what if they did, and what could happen? Maybe the aliens will think that's the intelligent species that used to occupy this planet, and they bring them back, and they. They kill all the aliens. And then the aliens are going to say, clever girl. <laughs> I, you know, I, I really liked John Hammond in this movie. And I wouldn't mind a movie all about his flea circus. And like the ridicule and the, and the trials and tribulations that he went through then, that he, how he became the eccentric millionaire that he is today. I don't know if they went over this in the movie i think they might have alluded to it but in the book didn't he like originally start with like a miniature elephant or something wasn't there yeah they, they had made a pygmy elephant that's how they went around to get all their investors to give money to the park 
where they had this like little miniature elephant that they would show off like this is what we can do with genetic science and people were just throwing money at him and then he created dinosaurs and ruined the planet wow so if this movie is kind of similar to frankenstein in a lot of ways that's kind of similar to bride of frankenstein he's making the small version of (laughs) <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Dinosaur good. <laughs> oh Lord. yeah. Oh yeah. It's amazing. In the book, John Hammond is the villain. Like the straight up villain. And in this book, he's, you know, he's he's the, the most avuncular of avuncular. He's Walt Disney. And, yeah, he's well exactly. Yep. Very good. Yeah, he's Walt Disney. Yep. Yeah. I would even say Walt Disney mixed with the uh, the prospector from uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Right? Yeah, the thing with that guy though is the the the, uh, the Walter Houston character Howard is like he kind of gets that we're all after money, um, and and John Hammond in this movie is like not that interested in money. He just wants to give spectacles, and in the book he's literally like we're here to entertain the rich kids to make money. And he, I think he has actually has a line where he goes. No, but like, they'll have a coupon day, Tom, right? Yeah. <laughs> in the book, he actually has a line where he's like, I don't want to help humanity. You know, it's like that level of villain. Uh, he also seems to hate his grandchildren in the book, too. It's he's like a, he's a completely different character. He's totally this like capitalist villain. That's the whole, that's the whole book. That was another great adaptation change. Was I agree. John John Hammond into something I agree. They also go a lot more in the book about, you know, the the espionage of uh, the one company trying to steal the embryos from the other. Like we get the scene with Dennis Nedry getting the cash and like steal these things. But we don't really get the whole backstory about what it is and who the who who Dotson is and who the other like who the other company that's behind the scenes is. I also don't think we needed it. I think the movie has a better pace because we cut it out, but it would there's a lot more nuance in the book about like how dastardly and dirty these scientists are that are trying to make profit. Yeah, it's the the book opens. Do you remember Chris the the opening uh, chapter of the book, the introduction? It's a list of um, it's a it's a list slash rant of all the companies that are now making money off of genetic research and how. Uh, this is the new investment thing, and this is going to outpace the computer easily, which didn't happen exactly. Um, but it, it is the book is like really, really, really brutal in terms of scientific discovery as being something that somebody might make some money off of, or even scientific discovery generally. It's very, very like uh, intense in that sense. It's time for question three. How does Dr. Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, make a living professionally? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in? KJ? He's a, he's a mathematician that writes books, I think. Tom? He's a chaotician. Chris? So yeah, in the in the in the in the in the truck, he calls himself a mathematician, but then immediately corrects himself to say that he's actually a chaotician, as Tom said. In a rare change of fate, I'm going to give everyone points because you all hit on different elements. KJ is the most uh, lenient of the of the answers that is getting points. He's a very gifted mathematician who specializes in chaos theory. So everyone hit kind of one of those points. 
So yes, that's what he does. But what I want to talk about is the concept of man versus nature prominently displayed in this film. Well, the, the chaos theory element is actually a lot of fun. I think it's pretty interesting. It's more prominent in the book, obviously, because the book they can explain these things. And there's something in the book called the Malcolm effect, which is not present in the movie. But the idea of man versus nature is best probably explained in terms of, of the weather, right? Where we can't predict the weather because nature itself is so unpredictable. There's, there's so many elements that go into the system that we call the weather that you can't calculate it. That tends to be the thing, or that is the thing that Ian Malcolm is bringing to John Hammond. He's saying the system you're attempting is so complicated that you can't really plan it out, right? You can't know all of the details that go into, into creation. You can't control this. Um, you know, there's sort of an emergent order type argument going on there. And that ends up being what what kills them is that they just cannot plan for something this complex. Yeah, I feel like I totally agree with what Tom said, but I, I'm going to take this in a different direction. I feel like this is the millennials monster movie. So like uh, in the 50s, people like my parents, they would have had like the Godzilla, the Godzillas that were coming over from Japan in those movies. Uh, and then the 70s, then you have your jaws, you have your your monster versus man kind of thing. And I feel like this is another one of those monster versus man, but for our generation, which is why it's made so much money, why they continue to make new ones. Now that we're in our 30s and 40s, spending all the money on toys and games and uh, and going to the movies, they're they're continuing the trend. But yeah, it's 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 a trope that I really enjoy. I've, I watch literally every monster movie that ever comes out. But at the same time, like it's really it's really kind of just rehashing the same thing. Like it's kind of like Frankenstein where they make something they shouldn't and then it attacks them and they wonder why that happened. And uh, Malcolm is the, is the individual in the book and the movie that knows that it's going to happen before it happens, which is kind of interesting. Like you're so, I think he even says at the, the, the dinner table scene where he slams his fist on the, on the things like you've, you've put it on lunch boxes before you even realize what you've done. And I think that's a really telling kind of point that, if you think logically about it, yeah, maybe it's not the best idea to make like a 50 ton dinosaur that's got gigantic teeth that could eat you or eat you off the toilet when you're trying to run away from it. Life uh, finds a way. Yeah, so, so Chris, going back to your, this is our monster movie and even uh, building on the theme that Nick's bringing up, um, you know, man versus nature. So in King Kong, man defeats nature with technology, specifically the planes that kind of shoot him off of the... But man brings him to their society, right? Right, which is, right. The, which is the entire plot of Lost World, by the way. They bring the Tyrannosaurus Rex to San Diego. Oh, totally, yeah. But then, and then in Godzilla, man comes up with the technology to, I think, evaporate water very fast, and this defeats Godzilla. But in Jurassic Park, man never defeats nature. We flee. We get out of there. At the, at the climax of the movie, nature saves man from nature. And then they hop on the chopper and get out. So get to the chopper. Get to the. <laughs> Do you think Arnold Schwarzenegger would have improved Jurassic Park? No, <laughs> it's a T Rex. <laughs> he would have been shooting them with big guns. <laughs> what was the What was the girl's name? Lex. 
Oh, I thought you were going to start making me do Schwarzenegger quotes. Lexi, it's a man-eating dinosaur. I hope you have enough room for my fist because you're going to ram it into your stomach. I'm going to make you extinct. But, um, I didn't uh, try to do a Schwarzenegger, just the words. But again, in Jurassic Park, the conclusion is a lot different than most of the man versus nature stories and certainly a lot of the monster stories we don't defeat the monster here right we create them and then we tuck tail and run in the book they napalm the island they destroy them all <laughs> well, that <laughs> the velociraptors get off you're led to believe they migrate into, into the mountains of costa rica well we already we already know that the compies are off off the and island. the compies have also gotten off um yeah i think the difference here in terms of um man versus nature is that in like king kong or in godzilla or, or something like i don't think it's necessarily true in king kong but certainly in the godzilla things there is this idea of environmental damage as being something that's going to come back and biting and, and bite us right um with the frankenstein story which is what jurassic park is it's a frankenstein story it's that the sheer act of creation, the will of creation itself is something godlike and incredible and to be admired, but also extremely dangerous. And that's the, the Prometheus story. The Promethe Prometheus stole fire from the gods to give to mankind. And as a punishment for this, he was chained to a rock and had his either his intestines or his liver shoot out by a vulture every day and at the end of the day the liver would grow back and the vulture would come back and shoot it out the next day and the idea being that like this sort of invasion of nature or taking on the role of the creative force of nature is going to inherently have some kind of punishment um with the and malcolm says that right malcolm mm -hmm. malcolm goes through that whole sequence where malcolm goes through that whole sequence where I guess in his thing, we don't exactly become gods, but we kill the gods to allow us to make dinosaurs. Yeah, exactly. The Nietzschean thing. Yeah. Right. And, and then women inherit the earth. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but Tom, at the end of this movie, what's the conclusion? I, I think the conclusion at the end is that it's, it's the Promethean one, right? It's the Frankenstein one. It's in the end that the creator kills the master. Now, granted, John Hammond lives and, and whatever. Um, Did you mean the creation kills the master? Yes, the creation kills the master. And yes, they don't blow up the island. These dinosaurs presumably continue on, or um, if, if you believe that the Lost World and Jurassic Park 3 are quote-unquote canon, um, but the park falls apart. The evidence that you can control nature, that this is something that you can play with and make to be your own and make to be... Um, how to say it, make in your own image, right? Make to be an entertainment for you. That's completely betrayed. The entertainment is gone. The, the value that this thing was supposed to have for us and for the kids from all over the world who are going to come see dinosaurs and be happy, that's gone because nature is something that you cannot control and shape in your own image. You are not God. You never will be. It's time for question four. What was the anticipated payday amount that Dennis Nedry, played by Wayne Knight, would have received upon delivery if he didn't get lost on his way to the East Dock? Locked in. Oh, I have to do math. <laughs> um, 
locked in with a guess. A 1990s guess, but still a guess. I didn't ask for inflation adjusted, so you're good, KJ. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm, I think I have it. I'm going to lock in, yeah. Okay, Tom, you're going to lead the pack this time. Not KJ um, for a change. I think, so it's... Oh lord, it's like seven hundred fifty up front, fifty thousand per species. I think it's one point five million. I, I thought it was seven hundred and fifty k total. Uh the brown satchel has seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in it, and then he's told he can have fifty thousand for all fifteen embryos each. So that makes that one point five million. Okay, everyone answered it in a variety of different ways. Um, but I'm going to have to give it to, sorry, Tom, KJ and Chris, because I was asking what the anticipated payday amount would be it, upon delivery of that last payment. So it wasn't the initial 750 uh, right. It would have been 750 k KJ, you worded differently, but you did utter the word 750 k <laughs> uh, But Chris is going to take down the episode. <laughs> he is exactly right. Tom, you were close. It was 15 embryos times 50 k Your math was right. But the the upon delivery was only half, which would have been that seven. Yeah, I gave you the total amount of money he was going to make. Yes. So, Chris, congratulations on the episode. Honestly, you guys did a great job because I ask wonky questions. So, (laughs) really did a good job there. But helps that I've seen this movie like twenty times. Yeah, you were kind of with the early lock-in, so I figured you would be good there. Now we may have already addressed this one. But there are elements, maybe not. I was really going to go with the concepts of power and or greed that really are shown prominently in this film. Yeah, I, I they're more pro. When we think of the the book, the greed stuff is more prominent, right? It's all about well, Nedry. We could talk about Nedry. Yeah, it's and Donald Gennaro and Nedry are the two embodiments of greed, right? And which is. Um, a little unfair to poor Gennaro, who actually survives the book. He's uh, <laughs> he's somewhat more likable in the book. He doesn't exactly run away from the children. That's somebody else's job. Um, but you know, anybody who thinks they can make money off the island, obviously they ha- they have to die. They have to be punished, which is pretty standard Hollywood trope, right? If you're interested in how I can make a, a buck off of this thing then there has to be some kind of comeuppance for you, which of course is ironic considering <laughs> that Spielberg is the master of the blockbuster, but you know, whatever, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty commonplace. Um, and it's greed kind of which brings the island down, right? Wouldn't you say? That's the, yes. that's the chaos that uh, Hammond couldn't plan for. I like the scene where he mentions that the only one on his side is the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely tell Michael Crichton doesn't like lawyers. Gennaro uh, Gennaro in the movie is actually an amalgamation of like two or three characters from the book. All of them are kind of jammed together in this one kind of unlikable individual that gets eaten by the Tyrannosaur. Uh, Nedry and his greed, and this, is, this is, goes back to Hammond. Hammond says they spared no expense. Well, it's the reason that Nedry wants to rob yes! him is because he did spare expenses, apparently, with uh, just on Nedry. Pay, paying Nedry. I did find it interesting, and I always do every time I watch this film, that the downfall is the one place where he cheaped out. Well, but there's no evidence that he cheaped out. Yeah. Right? It, it could just been Newman wanted more and more and more and more and more. Newman. Jerry. In the book, it's there's glitches and 
Nedry's firm wants more money to deal with them. And Hammond says that that's underneath the original contract. And that kind of frustrates him. Um, yeah, it also is indicated that, that Nedry is having personal financial problems and that that's kind gambling of or something. I feel like they alluded to that. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what it is, but it's Hammond just says, I'm sorry, Nedry, you have these, these financial problems, but they are your problems. I don't blame people for their mistakes. I only ask that they yeah, deal. Yeah. It, it seems to point to Nedry's just a jerk, right? Nedry's the the fly in the drink, and that's what's... Ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, you didn't say the magic word. The other greed that I, I kind of really like is Hammond's greed, which isn't for money, but there's something he's desperately missing and he wants, and, and he exudes it with his sarcasm, right? He opens up their bottle of champagne at their dig site without talking to them, asking them, because he knows exactly what he's going to say that's going to win them over anyway. I mean, he's funding them. So he has a greed that's driving him, but I'm not really sure what it's for. It's for discovery, right? It's it's what Frankenstein wanted. He wanted to discover this this new thing. Ah, maybe, like, but when he's talking about that flea circus, there's no discovery I, there. I, I feel I feel like he wants to be remembered. Like he wants legacy. Like he he has yes, the flea definitely. circus. He's ridiculed for it. He's like, I tried to create something that would entertain people, and they don't like it. I'm gonna make something that they can't possibly forget. And I feel like that's where it kind of it kind of came from for him. It's time for movie rant. So I figure I'd start with something light in movie rant. How about we just go over what the bonus tiebreaker would have been if we needed it? I'm just curious if anyone actually knows this one. Uh, my, my money would be on Chris if anyone. Uh, don't take it personal. Here we go. What is the name of the backdoor program Dennis Nedry made to disable a plethora of the park systems? Uh, was it like phone something or other? Something I, don't, I don't remember this one. Yeah, Because uh, yeah, he, he verbally says, I got to reset the phones or something and things might go wonky. And then I'm pretty sure on the on the screen i thought i said i thought i saw something with the phones i was like "Ooh!" in case somebody's looking over his shoulders they'll think he's well i'll just tell you because i don't think anyone's going to get it he initiated it was it, it looks like white rabbit dot obj but it's oh. w-h-t-e-r-b-t dot obj i feel stupid yeah. for not saying white rabbit was on my tongue <laughs> yeah oh was it but i was i was totally guessing because like a lot of a lot of I, I didn't I didn't know that that was the answer. I don't remember it from the movie. I don't remember seeing that. But a lot of times whenever there's some sort of a little little wormhole you got to travel down, they, they always go back to, to yeah. Lewis Carroll and the White Rabbit. <laughs> like It's like the Matrix and the White Rabbit. Yeah, exactly. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what was different in the book versus the the movie. Because I, I, I said before, I think the movie is better than the book. Uh, and literally you can go down the cast of characters and who lives at the end those are probably people that are dead in the book. <laughs> uh, Muldoon actually survives the book. Uh, he gets on the helicopter and goes away. Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler do. The kids do. Hammond Malcolm, dies, right? Malcolm yeah. dies. Uh, Hammond dies. Yeah. Like they go, they, they go back and visit Malcolm in the book quite a few times. Oh, he's still drugged up. Oh, he's still losing leg. He's still losing blood. Oh, he, like they're going back to him over and over again just so that you could watch him die at the end. Like it's... It seemed a little, a little gratuitous, honestly. Uh, 
Gennaro, Gennaro, the character, the one character Gennaro lives, uh, even though his other combined characters, they all die. Yeah. Ed, I think, was the other one. Yeah, Ed Regis. Ed Regis, the um, publicity manager, yeah. Yep. It seems like the reason why they keep going back to Malcolm in all of this is so that Malcolm can explain his philosophy. <laughs> That's why they keep visiting Malcolm as he's dying is so he can jump on a soapbox and and talk about, you know, the problems of scientific investigation. And then John Hammond could go, I don't know what he's talking about, which would prompt Malcolm to keep talking. Yeah, Chris, I agree with you. The, the movie is so much better than the book. Um, well, the winner of all that, uh, be, being a survivor, is Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> this film, not that he wasn't known at all, but this film really propelled him into some major blockbusters for years to come. Well, he did the fly before this. Yeah. this that was a long time ago. And then that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying he was an unknown, but this really put him center stage. Yeah, and God bless Jeff. Jeff Goldblum was one of the, the best changes, I think. Because I don't know. You could tell me, Chris, what you thought about Ian Malcolm in the book. I think he's a windbag. I think he's he's utterly irritating. Um, and Jeff Goldblum is so charming. He takes these ideas and instead of like slamming his fist and being angry about it, he turns himself into this like Lothario mathematician in his black leather jacket. Um, I, I loved his performance. And his sex appeal, Tom. Yeah, yeah. but he does have <laughs> sex appeal though, right? He is, you know, you could, you could see him as somebody- More than Grant. <laughs> yeah, I know, poor, oh God, Grant is kind of a, a bore in this. Though to be fair, he's also not a character in the book. There's like, the things we know about Grant in the book is he likes to be casual and he had a wife who died some time ago, but we don't know anything about that relationship or, you know, what have you. Um, he's also not in a relationship with Ellie Satlett who's also not a character in the book, but you know, she's an outline of a human being. All we know is she's 24, she's a paleobotanist, she has nice legs because they tell us that, and she's gonna marry a doctor from Chicago. That's all we know about her. She has almost no personality. And one of the best things about the movie, I think is also Laura Dern. Having Laura Dern with all her charisma and sex appeal and just the wonderful way she plays beats come in and fill in this barely written character. Although I will say her injured running is not necessarily the best I've seen. <laughs> Am I the only one there, by the way? Am no, I the only one? That, that, that scene with her, like, I don't know when she gets injured. Like, why is she limping at that part? Anyhow, I guess because she's dragging the flashlight behind her. And then two, two scenes later, now Tim has got the same mysterious injury to his ankle as he's trying to run the dinosaur into the freezer. Well, <laughs> he, he literally at least fell from a car into a tree. <laughs> like he had some things going on. You're gonna get electrocuted. He's seen some things. I don't know, Chris, as somebody who's also read the, the book recently, um, what did you think of the the way characters are designed? In the nope, book? I, to I totally agree. I actually put it in my show notes here that Alan Grant is more developed in the movie than he is in the book. Uh, I think that's true of all the characters. You're spot on with Ellie Sattler. Uh, you're spot on with Malcolm. I don't, I think that uh, Jeff Goldblum brought the essence of the character as written, but brought it in such a way that it wasn't so talking down to you. It was more explaining it to you. And I think that was, that made it all the better. So yeah, I think the casting was spot on, even if the age differential was really weird, considering that the movie 
they tried to make you think like there was some something going on between Grant and Ellie. Uh, my wife had actually told me that uh, Laura Dern was like 24, 25 in the movie when she filmed the movie and Alan Grant was in his 40s when he would like the actor was was like about 40 when he shot the film like so it was a weird weird age differential for that and he's supposed to be she is supposed to be his student in the book and that doesn't really come across in the movie but that's that's what it was supposed to be i didn't think she was a student in the movie i thought they were just yeah they seem more like partners or... no they're def- they're definitely together in the movie like they're they're even talking about having kids at some point but in the book she's definitely his student hanging out and like like tom said getting married to somebody else eventually and also in the there is a line in the book where alan goes i like children that you know he actually there has a little little speech where he talks about how much he likes children so that's also been altered it literally took two scenes in the movie of alan talking to the kid with the velociraptor a hook and like slicing him across the belly for you to know everything you need to know about that character like he is straight to business and then the resourcefulness of him is when they're in the helicopter and he ties the seatbelt. Like this, this is a guy that can survive some some crap because he can just problem solve on the fly, which I thought was very very simple scene, but told you so much about that character that you didn't need to know anymore. And like that was enough. Yeah, and all the seatbelts in that scene told you stuff about the different characters. But Tom, while I was watching the beginning of this movie, I said, "Oh, I know what Tom's gonna say," and let me know if you agree. This movie is very economic. Like it just <laughs> moved pretty quick and told you a lot of information in a pretty short amount of time. Yeah, yeah, no, but you're right. I think that that is a thing I would say, and I think it is, I think it is accurate. You know, it um, Spielberg. You know, another way to say it is Spielberg is a filmmaker, right? He's not maybe our smartest filmmaker, but he is a really good one, and he knows how to tell a story with action and not with talking heads. Right. And I think that's a really good point, you know, that you bring up, KJ, and, and Chris, you bring up as well with your examples um, of like, we get to know who Alan Grant is with that kind of story with the, um, with the, uh, the, the Velociraptor hook. But also, as you're pointing out, KJ and, and Chris as well, like the seatbelts tell us everything, right? Watching these characters tie seatbelts gives us a world of information without having to have them just kind of talking heads explain things, which an inferior director might succumb to i have something that is definitely out of the film but i just thought was really interesting or funny so apparently dennis nedry's outfits in jurassic park are the same as three characters in the goonies like the exact outfits so he (laughs) has the when you meet him he's chunk yes so when you meet him he's chunk with his hawaiian shirts uh, when he has this like uh, gray jacket, he resembles Mouth. an outfit that Mouth was wearing. And then when he's got his rain jacket, he looks like uh, Mikey. So <laughs> it has nothing to do with the film, but it's t- too on the money to just be a coincidence. That's awesome. <laughs> I'll, I'll, add, I'll add a little piece of trivia that I know about it. Uh, Alan Grant, I don't know if it was the book or the movie version, but they were actually modeled on a New Jersey native. He actually grew up in uh, in Bergen County. His name is Robert Backer. He's oh. the first guy that actually said that blood dinosaurs had to be warm blooded, specifically the Brontosaurus. And when you mm. when they when the characters first see the Brachiosaur in the field in the first one, Alan Grant actually even says, "There's no way he's cold blooded. He has to be warm blooded." Like that's a callback to. He's a relatively famous paleontologist in that in that era that actually grew up in new jersey so that was kind of a cool that's little cool he's mentioned in the movie. 
Tim is he? mentions him. Yeah, he says, and there's other. Oh, guys. that's right. Yeah, that's right. They mentioned the book. Yeah. Uh, Robert Barker also has a book I actually read as a kid. Um, it is a biography of a velociraptor living in the time of you know the late Crustaceous, um, which is a fun read. <laughs> like called Red Raptor or something like that. It was fiction, right? I think that was yeah, a, was a fiction, fiction book. Mm -hmm. It's funny though when I think back to pre-K. For some reason, we all wanted to be paleontologists. Like we knew that specific scientific field, nothing else, but we all wanted to be paleontologists until we realized what that meant. A lot of hot summers in the desert, just like with little brushes. <laughs> I, I have a question for everyone. Like this whole like kind of anti-Promethean thing going on, do you guys buy it? No. We have to be careful. Yeah. But like, I, and maybe Hammond was reckless, but then it, it wouldn't be a fun movie if he wasn't reckless. Right. Like yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, know. I think it's I'm more funny. worried about Skynet than the dinosaur uprising. So. <laughs> are we, are we talking about, are we talking about this in terms of real, real life? Or are we talking about it in terms of this movie? Well, <sighs> I don't know. Take it wherever you like. But I, I mean, I just, I have, I, I find it, one of the things I find frustrating with this movie is, and kind of movies like it, it's where uh, Wally does this as well, right? Where it's like, the great technology is going to ruin everything, but it also made possible Wally. <laughs> it also makes possible Jurassic Park. And so it just seems to be self-contradicting. Um, and the book is brutal. I mean, the book is just, a, is, I mean, how, what percentage of the book, Chris, is devoted to ranting about technology? Like, about it, there's, there's quite a bit. Yeah, there's yeah. quite a bit. Yeah, I, I yeah. think, I think I'll, I'll, I'll say yes and no to your original question. I think that it's dangerous in that it always changes life. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. So, like, when we invented the car, yeah, we didn't have to have horse farmers anymore. So those individuals kind of saw it as this devastating destruction. But then it made other things possible, like the suburbs and and sprawl and things like that. And then now it now that cars become an issue because we have too much pollution. And that it's always this, it's like it's a it's a an ever changing landscape. So I think the technology and the the development of it is dangerous and scary at the time. But at the same time, if we don't come up with those technologies, we don't grow as a civilization or a people. So yeah, it's 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 bad in the fact that you know it's going to change people's lives, some for the better, some for the worse. But I think it's inevitable. Like somebody's going to do it, and we should just hopefully try to do it correctly. Let's be honest. In this present world, if the ultra wealthy had the science to create Jurassic Park, they would create Jurassic Park <laughs> without it. I mean, I'd love to hear someone argue it. Yeah, I, super my, wealthy do crazy stuff because they can. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, you know, I wasn't not to go off. I wasn't trying to go so far off the movie. I just always find it um, somewhat frustrating when watching a movie like this, and then it's complaining about the, you know, the advancement of technology, which often is used to make entertaining things like the movie itself. Um, it, you know, I always find those kind of things a tad frustrating um and especially it comes from like the this kind of promethean literature tradition where like creation is this great power and like being able to create is like stealing fire from the gods and that's what makes that's what a rebel is 
And so like in the history of this literature, you know, if you think of like Prometheus Unbound by Percy Bysshe Shelley um, or um, a similar poem by uh, Goethe, there is this idea of like, uh, like, yeah, we're going to create the wildness and, and screw the gods who want to prevent us. Um, I kind yeah, of like that energy is, more. Is Jurassic Park the movie saying that or is no, no, no. specifically Malcolm saying the speed at which Hammond uh, moved or the end goal of Hammond was an amusement park, not the science? Right. Is that the complaint in Jurassic Park? Is but that Hammond the also says Hammond says, like, um, what's so good about discovery? It's a penetrating act. What you call discovery, I call the rape of the natural world. Yeah. Malcolm. Right. Malcolm says that. Mm -hmm. Right. True. But would Malcolm have had a problem if he showed up and they had one dinosaur in one small little thing where they were just seeing like testing the technology? If he had shown up 10 or 20 years earlier, I, I don't know how long it took to develop this and if Hammond was taking it in a different direction would Malcolm have had a similar problem um, I would say he would that's yeah, just I my opinion because mm -hmm. you're still going in that direction because he yeah. sees where it's going to go not necessarily where it is mm -hmm. yeah I think he would say that that kind of discovery inevitably leads to chaos that you can't really control so even having one dinosaur in a small little pen the system is still so complicated that it's it's not going to work the way you, you want it to. Well, the only one able to control the chaos this week was Chris Matalevich, who took down this episode. So congratulations once again, Chris. I, I'm Ooh. gonna use I'm gonna use my time here to say what a transition that was. Holy <laughs> that was amazing. We've well been done, Nick. Well done. We've been practicing. <laughs> Nailed it. Different methods <laughs> keep me quiet. <laughs> <laughs> you can find more of our content wherever you listen to podcasts on our youtube channel twitter at talking studios and our website talkingpicturestrivia.com we're extremely grateful to all those who subscribe like follow and leave a review john hammond genius or madman let us know on twitter talkingpicturestrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 Thanks again, Chris, for joining us today. Absolutely, guys. This is always a lot of fun. I can't wait to do the Lord of the Rings episodes with you guys. It's going to be a blast. Oh, yeah. That's going to be fun. You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15. And you can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time when we discuss KJ's recommendation from Japan in 2001, The Happiness of Katukuris. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Next week, we'll be discussing the happiness of the Katakoris. Pat, how was your watch? KJ asked me to do this recording on a Japanese remake of a Korean horror movie, and it's a musical. And I thought, wow, those are many, many words that do not apply to films that I usually would, would be willing to watch. But I said, okay, I will, I will, I will take one for the team and I will do it. Um, so that also meant that I cannot watch it. Uh, I figured I could not watch it when I had my uh, kids with me during the day. So I got up at four o'clock in the morning to get up and watch this movie before the kids were awake. Uh, it is a, it's a trip. <laughs> it is definitely a trip, especially at four in the morning. Um, but it is, it is, very interesting film. It is not a film I would normally watch, 
but it is a very, very interesting film. I can't wait to talk further about it next week. Uh, Chris, what about you? I too was asked by KJ to watch this film and uh, I'm not one to dabble in Japanese films too often, but the last one I watched was House, which was also one that KJ had mentioned. And that ended up being just so, it's like such a bonkers ride. I had to watch this one too. And boy, was I not let down with some (laughs) of the stuff that was in this film because it was was out of control Uh, in a good way. I enjoyed it. I laughed out loud probably three or four times, which I don't know if I was supposed to, but I did. Uh, And I... You know what? It's, it's one of those movies that I would never would have watched either unless KJ had brought it up. So I'm glad he did. And I, too, cannot wait to talk more about it because it was it's something else. What about you, Tom? So I also learned about this movie from KJ very, very recently, probably within the last week. And I watched the movie that it's based on, the 90, 1998 movie, The Quiet Family, a South Korean movie, which I thought was pretty awful. It's a it's a pretty terrible movie and I was not looking forward to watching this and this movie is Citizen Kane compared to compared to its original <laughs> and, um, and I'm not I will say overly fond of this movie I, I had laughed out loud like you did Chris quite a number of times there's a few things like when, when the sad family comes in with that recorder i couldn't stop laughing at that girl playing that recorder and the boy coughing you're just waiting for this poor boy to die like i thought that was so funny um uh it's and it is very imaginative what's interesting about it is like many of the musical numbers aren't that imaginative despite the fact that the movie itself is is kind of bonkers the musical numbers are they're actually not only are they kind of lame in their lyrics but they don't look like anything really um and so that was kind of disappointing because i really like musicals and we have not done a musical and i was looking forward to to that facet of the movie and it's actually the probably the worst part of it um there's a lot more interesting things than that how about you kj how was your first watch First of all, thanks guys for at the last minute jumping in on this and jumping into a Japanese musical based on a Korean horror film. Um, I had caught this movie on Amazon Prime a few years back. Uh, the poster, I saw the poster. I don't know if you guys have seen the poster, but it, it's, it looks very much like Sound of Music, but it's a little bit sillier. And I then read the description and I was all in. Um, after watching the movie, I wasn't sure if I wanted to bring it to the show. Because like you say, Tom, the, the musical aspect, like the songs aren't that good. The numbers aren't that good. There might be one or two in there that are that are worth it. But the 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 bonkers plot and the just the way the movie unfolds, you know, if, if you don't know what's coming, it, it's very surprising. Um, but I think I would treat it more like a fun oddity that's in Barnum's American Museum or something as opposed to a, a proper film. The Happiness of the Katakuris is not available on any of the streaming services at the time of this recording, but as I said, it's been on Amazon Prime, so keep a lookout. It It's on Tubi. Oh, it's on Tubi? Yeah, it, it was is. On, I watched it on Tubi, yeah. That's how I watched it, and it had, has, it had uh, closed caption, too. Audience at home, while Nick's gathering his questions, Tom's doing dinosaur impressions in the camera. <laughs> Velociraptor. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. They just look like this. You just naturally look like a velociraptor. <laughs> <laughs> no, their eyes are always kind of like their teeth are always. Tom, Tom is always thinking, planning. 
<laughs> Tom hunts in packs. Tom was always planning how to murder the children. Tom was a, Tom was a clever girl. <laughs> <laughs> clever girl. <laughs>